this week on the Backtable Podcast. It's better to not try and score points at someone else's expense if you don't have to. It doesn't hurt to be nice to people. And most things are still, you know, even when things go wrong, it's good people trying to do the right thing. And it doesn't stop bad things happening, but that doesn't mean that they're at fault. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you'll hear stories from founders and physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Hey, everybody, really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, Guys, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now, on with the episode. I'm your guest host, Eric Gantworker. I'm a physician, pediatric otolaryngologist, with special interest in technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. We have the very good friend, Dr. Michael Rudder. So, Dr. Rudder, thank you so much for being on the show. Today, we're really going to focus on not just innovation, but the person behind the innovation. And I really like to focus on the origin story, things that sort of led up to that innovation. I always like to start off by having you sort of introduce yourself and, you know, sort of how you usually introduce yourself to others. Thank you very much for the invitation, Eric. This is something new for me. So um, I tend to sort of just say that, uh, you know, I, I'm a ENT surgeon and I've been stuck in America for a while, but that really don't tend to explore it in too much detail if they really want to know. You know, I mainly operate on kids. I do a little bit of airway surgery and that's sort of about it. I think the thing that I particularly like is that within Cincinnati, far more people know me as a swim meet announcer than know me as an airway surgeon. So that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, I like to explore the idea of identity and, and how people introduce themselves sort of tells you what identity they put first. Um, and so you as an airway surgeon, but, you know, it's funny because when you switch domains into swimming, everybody knows you as a swim announcer. You know, everybody at meetings know you as the Hawaiian shirt guy, right? So, you know, it's, it's interesting how identity sort of defines you. But innovation and really like what you've been known for is innovation and flexible thinking and the MacGyver, right? So everybody says to themselves, what would Rudder do? Um, and then they actually text you or call you and ask you, what would, what would Rudder do? So that's not part of your identity that you would say to others. So how do you think that sort of developed within you as a person? And how did you become known as that person? I mean, you, you don't plan these things. It was, uh, usually this is innately a problem solving exercise. You've got a patient with a problem. You try to think of a solution for them. you start doing something and often you find that by default, it's got wider application. And so just about everything I've innovated, if you want to use that term. And, and, and at the time I didn't think of it as innovation. It was just problem solving. And, uh, you sometimes find it's got far wider application. And so, you know, some of these things are now have passively become reasonably mainstream perhaps, but again, this was, you know, this was never the original intent. Almost all of these 
devolve down to a single patient with a problem, what on earth are we going to do about it? So take me back to, to young Michael Rudder. A long time ago, right? I know, seriously. I think there were still dinosaurs, but I'm not really sure. We'll have to check on that. But, you know, so take me back then. Were you somebody who was like a problem solver sort of from the beginning? Like, did you have sort of this in, in you early on? I honestly don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things I, I remember, you know, say my first year at medical school and I was running a uh, program for the next year's first year medical students. And by default, we, you know, we changed it a lot, but again, it was a problem solving exercise at the time. I didn't see that as being an issue or think of it in that sense. You just sort of get to a point in your life and your career where you look back and you start to think, you know, I, I did do a few things that are a bit different. And when I was at a little later on at medical school, I was sort of, you know, I think I was the president of our medical association actually at the medical school. And I, I sort of didn't really think about it much, but I did a lot of things in hindsight that were unusual. Man, we had some great parties. Um, so <laughs> what I did was that I, I actually went and um, installed Space Invaders machines in our cafeteria and I started to mint money. And so then I decided I would start renovating the cafeteria. And so I firstly went to a bunch of companies in town and said, look, I'll buy the furniture. Your name will be on the back of it. You pay me half, I'll pay you half. And so a bunch of companies agreed. And then I thought, you know, the university might be interested. So I went to them and said, I'll do half, you do half. And suddenly I refurbished the cafeteria for free, bought an amazing stereo system. And then, you know, all of the parties we ran, you know, as, as you know, I don't drink. Everyone else drinks like fish, but the administrators knew that I didn't drink. So they had let me run anything. And the one smart thing I did was that I ran a dry bar. So basically the people working at the bar, if they didn't drink, they didn't start giving away free drinks. And so suddenly we were by far the most popular place to have a party. And we had an enormous amount of free cash around, at least for medical students at the time, and, you know, did a, a bunch of other things. And it was just, you know, really quite good fun. And at the time, it was just fun. You sort of look back and you think, you know, okay, that was a little bit of a problem solving exercise in a way. And in some senses, I guess that sort of continued as you started to go into clinical medicine. So it was, you know, it was just good fun at the time. And frankly, what I do now, even when I'm innovating today, I'm doing it because it's good fun. I mean, even this week we did something where I thought, you know, wow, why don't we try this? And it worked really well. And again, it was a problem solving exercise. And of course, you know, I'm going to end up with a fellow writing a paper about it, but that's cool. And it was just, you know, it's thinking outside the box. It's trying to help a particular patient with a particular problem. And you do something that is a little unusual, yet almost all of these make complete sense when you think about it. It's just following the flow of logic. So what we did this week was we had a kid who, one of my colleagues had a uh, kid with a trait whose nominate artery is in his neck. So the trait's pressing against it. And it also means the trait goes in at a funny angle. So it back walls pretty badly. And 
we were thinking of doing a thymectomy, a nominate artery pexy through the neck, because we've done quite a few of those as a previous innovation, I suppose. And what I decided was, you know, why take the thymus out? Why don't we dissect it free, but keep it attached distally, then dissect between the trachea and the anominate artery, tuck it underneath that, pull it up and reattach it to the sternum. And so you're pexing the innominate, not with sutures, but with the kid's own thymus, which is going to act as a big, thick cuff, protecting it from the trachea. And, you know, it worked beautifully. It was just kind of fun. It's totally logical and it's solved. You know, this is not a common problem. This is not like something you're going to do every week, but it's uh, it was a very nice solution. That's interesting. So we're, we're going to get really deep into surgical innovation because I think that's really, really, I think where a lot of listeners are interested in. But I, I want to go a little bit back to some of the early things. And, and we have a big debate, obviously, in the world, are innovators born or bred? So if we were to use that word innovator um, and call you an innovator, would you say that innovators are born and bred and why? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, if you'd have asked me years ago, I wouldn't have considered myself an innovator and I would have said that they were probably bred. And nowadays, you know, there is no doubt that there are some people who are just more willing to think outside the box. So I, I do think it's something innate to some people's personalities. It's a combination of being willing to entertain a little bit of risk, being willing to not be a, you know, for us, a cookbook surgeon. I've seen some people who are really gifted surgeons, but they do what they've been taught to do. And it's the sort of trying to take a step back and think, you know, why do we have to do it that way? Can't we do some other alternative things? And so I, th I think in that sense, I think it is built into the hardwired personality of some people, unfortunately, which it's kind of a pity in a way, but some people just seem more able to think outside the box. I don't think it's just culture. I don't think it's where you grew up or your family. I think it's uh, a lot of it is just willingness to push boundaries. Of course, this also means that innovators have a little bit of a tendency to be mavericks and therefore tend to get themselves in trouble every now and again. And as a result, you tend to find, you know, with hospitals and hospitals love conformers, an awful lot of innovators, tertiary referral surgeons, if you want to put it in that sense, do you have a bit of a bad habit of running into trouble with administration in one fashion or another? I've actually amazingly managed to steer clear of that. It may just be it's all coming down the pipe in a rate of knots, but at the moment, no one's ever actually fired me, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. You're the good troublemaker, but you know, obviously, like, I think there's a lot of people who think about doing things. There's fewer people that actually do them. And I think that's part of what things that I'd like to really drill in on is you, not only do you think about things, you think flexibly. And I think that's really kind of what comes into those innovator DNA, but you actually willing to take that risk. Obviously within surgery, you have experience. Uh, there's been more than one that I've said the uh, Mike Rudder quote, that's less than ideal when something doesn't go quite right. But uh, I want to hear more about, you know, what do you think allows you to take that risk, to take that step besides just thinking about it? So one of the interesting things is, you know, in the operating room setting, I, I think a lot of people think 
you know, I guess cowboy is not the right term, but that I'm just going barreling on in there, irregardless of potential consequences. And often I am thinking on my feet to the point I don't always necessarily verbalize what's going on in my head. And again, as I look back, I, I think one of the key things is that it's not only having a interesting idea, it's all about risk identification and mitigation. And, and really, particularly, I'm an airway surgeon, so for me, that's kind of critical. And a lot of it is trying to think through the consequences of what you do, identify the potential risks, and then what can you do to help prevent them? And it may be something as trivial as, let me give you an example. If you're putting in a very long anterior cartilage graft that's going down into the chest and you're putting a bunch of suture material on it, you may have a suture knot sitting right against your innominate artery where it's pulsing against that knot. And if you're using something very stiff like proline where you've cut the suture relatively short, it's very stiff and unforgiving. If, however, you put the stitches from lateral to medial and there's nothing on the front, and if you leave long tails, you're much less likely to have something embarrassing like an innominate artery blowout. And so, again, a lot of these things almost seem trivial but a lot of it, and again, it's very hard to always verbalize what you're doing because you just do it because it sort of makes sense, but it's not something that necessarily jumps into everyone else's mind in the room. And so I think a great deal of this is, again, not only opportunity, you've got a good idea, it's risk evaluation and mitigation. I, I think that's really key. So I may look like a cowboy. But oddly enough, I've usually actually done the risk evaluation, whether it's something I verbalized or not. And I think you, you touched upon that earlier, too, that like not only not only are you willing to take that risk, but you're also willing to ask why and to challenge the status quo. And I've tried to drill into any trainee that that will listen to me the power of why. Unfortunately, in surgery, when we went through learning, a lot of people just said, well, that's just how it was done, how it's always been done for the last hundred years. But obviously, you, I, I idolize you in the sense that you always asked why. You've got some poor decisions you've made. <laughs> I know. Well, we know <laughs> anyway. that. We know that. There's, there's, we'll touch on a bunch of things that I've taken from you. I think, I think you don't realize how much of an impression you've had on me, like even joking in the OR. So there, there's something that, uh, that you always had this calming effect on people in the operating room. When you walked in joking, everybody else's tension went down. And I found that to be such a vital skill to be able to lower the tension in the room. Even this morning, I had this case, you know, that we had to push this back. Everybody was really tense about this really critical kid. And I'm just joking around and, I, you know, something happened and I said, that's less than ideal. And we just sort of went and rolled with the punches. But I think when you have that persona, it just sort of lowers the tension in the room. People know when I get quiet, I'm thinking, and that's, that's when things can be bad. So when I'm quiet, it's usually bad. But again, that's something that I got from you. But what takes people to really dig in deeper? What took you to say, hey, why do we do it this way? You know, because again, it leads to your innovation later on, but like, how do we teach people to ask why? I guess is maybe a better question. Well, I think that's exactly it. So let me give you two examples that work well for 
surgery and for ENT. So you sort of think a lot of people are locked into doing what they do because that's the way they do it. It's the rules for the sake of the rules, not the spirit of the rules. So for example, if you've got someone who's NPO for a surgery and an anesthetist will assist their NPO and you come back and you say, you know, they've got a grade four subglottic stenosis. You know, they don't have an esophagus and they've got a spit fistula or something like that. Basically, it's impossible for this person to aspirate. They don't need to be NPO. And it's very interesting looking at the people who then find this a struggle to get their head around. Those people will never be able to be innovators. They're not willing to actually think, why am I doing it the way I'm doing it? What's the reason? Once you know the reason, you know what are the exceptions to the reason? Where are the boundaries? Similarly, Kit comes in with a tonsil bleed. They've been admitted to the hospital. They're being observed. Why keep them in PO in case they need to go to the OR? Because if they go to the OR, it's because they've been bleeding. By definition, they'll have a stomach full of blood. So I don't keep them in PO. There's absolutely no logical reason to do it. If you're going to the OR, you're doing a rapid sequence anyway with a full stomach, by definition. And again, people struggle to think outside the box for things that, when you explain it, are just mind-blowingly self-evident. And so, yes, I completely agree with you. It's trying to teach people to question what they're doing. And once you can do that, then that leads you on the road to looking for alternative solutions that fulfill the basic criteria of why you're doing what you're doing. Absolutely. I think, I think that's the most important thing that I try to pass on is, is to ask the why. Because, you know, why do we do it this way? Why has it always been done this way? In surgery, I think we're terrible at teaching the next generation. One a good example, actually, I'm, I'm actually a very much a hybrid of where I did residency and fellowship. There's a lot of things that I took from Cincinnati, but some things I took from Boston Children's. But I didn't actually ask questions of why we did it a certain way in Cincinnati until I got to Boston, until I realized that I trained at a new institution and they did something different. And I asked why. And then I started to understand more of what I did back in Cincinnati a lot more because now I was like, oh, that's why we did it that way. That makes so much sense. But that deeper understanding, I think, is what we're drilling at. When you have a deeper understanding of something, then you have the ability to ask why. You have the ability like you have to move forward two steps and say, okay, what's going to happen if this happens? What happens if this happens? And I think it's that flexible thinking and that asking why is what really kind of is that magic that innovators have or you know, people who are change agents, I would say. Yeah. I mean, as I said, there are things that I didn't envisage that a lot of the things that I did would actually have any meaning beyond the patient I did it to. But it is kind of interesting that a few of these have had some traction, it seems. I also, just as an aside, totally agree with you. A relaxed operating room, I think, is fundamentally a safer place. Whereas an awful lot of people think you should be very serious in an operating room to be safe. And I just don't agree with that. If you can decompress a stressful situation, I think you're in a better place, even when it can be very stressful. I remember a couple of years ago, I was trying to remove a Palmar stent from a kid's airway. And, you know, the faucet broke so that the airway's full of wire and blood. 
and I don't have an optical forcep because it broke and the sats have hit 20 and the room's getting a little tense. You know, the pulmonologist looks like he could probably do with changing his underwear. And, you know, the anesthetist said, shall I hit the blue light? And I said, why? We're stuck on A. If I don't fix this, nothing else is going to matter. And so I just took an ordinary forcep, put it down by feel, felt it, grabbed it, pulled it out. And then you can intubate and the sats go up. But, you know, why set off the alarm bells? Because you are stuck on A. There's no B, C, D. Well, it's actually A, B, C, D, E, F. Airway, breathing, circulation, drugs, electricity, funeral. You don't want to go to F. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Definitely want to avoid F <laughs> in anything you do. Well, you want to avoid F. <laughs> so, you know, I think talking about the person behind, you know, I think is really interesting. I think another thing that people may or may not know about you is ENT wasn't your first specialty, um, at least specialty training. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how that may have prepared you for some of the things you do now? Oh, totally. So uh, it's, it's actually quite amusing because, and again, I think the take-home theme here is you can't always choose the journey, but the destination usually works out. And so I, I trained in New Zealand. So it's, you know, you, you go to medical school, you're 18, you do a six-year medical school, you pop out the other end, you then get into surgical training, and you have to start off as a non-trainee going through different specialties, and so, you know, I did a little bit of general surgery, neurosurgery, bit of plastics, quite a bit of orthopedics. And so all of this drags out a bit. And I decided I wanted to do orthopedic surgery. Don't judge me. And so, you know, that was quite fun. I mean, you know, I like the whole concept of tools and toys. I mean, you know, knee and teeth, tools and toys matter. And that sort of basic concept of, you know, you're trying to hammer in a nail. And if it won't go, you ask for a bigger hammer. I mean, this was just kind of fun. And so I was in a non-trainee post in a small town and I applied to the big city to, uh, you know, go and join there. And they had 12 positions and they lost my letter and I, you know, and they basically asked me to rank them and I said, I'll work for anyone except for this particular person. And of course, the only one left was that person. And yet that's the way that that's the way things happen in life. And so our orthopedic teams were two attendings and the other staff. So I'm working for this team and the background is that this particular guy and my father, who was a family doc, hated each other and this was partly because although he was a general practitioner, he also worked in the local spinal unit where this guy worked and they had very little respect for each other. And on top of that, he was the, you know, local school doctor at the school I'd been to where this guy's son went. And so he looked after this guy's son when he came in, having been beaten up by his father, when he came out of the closet. And so you sort of got layers of, you know, downside badness here. And traditionally, when you're going into the big interview for your speciality spot, at least in New Zealand, 
it was traditional to ask the two guys you were working with to be your referees. And so I actually said to him, if I asked you for a reference, would you be willing to support me? And he said, yes, of course. And so we're in the interviews and just the feeling was not good. You could tell something wasn't right. And I got to give this guy a hang of a lot of credit. One of the people I was interviewing said, so if you had a good reference and a bad reference, who would have given you the bad reference? And I said, oh, this guy. And he said, and you would have been absolutely right and slid it across the table for me to read. And he said, I've never seen a guy working for the same two people where you've got a reference that's so incredibly good and another one that's so bad. Could you explain? And I explained and he said, that makes total sense. And we have 12 people applying for four positions and any black mark is going to be magnified. Do you understand what I'm telling you? And I said, yes, I understand what you're telling me. And so on the plane leaving, I started to think, well, I'm not going to do orthopedics. What am I going to do? And, you know, I wondered whether I should go and sell real estate or be an orthopedic rep. And I decided, you know, I actually enjoy surgery. And so then you look at all the surgical subspecialities and like so many things in life, your decisions are defined by what you choose not to do. So neurosurgery was a lifestyle that utterly sucked. Eye surgery meant I'd have to do more exams, including neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. So there was no attraction there. Plastic surgery at the time, it wasn't what you knew, it was who you knew. General surgery involved butt pus, and I just had no interest in butt pus. And so I kept going through, and you know, I'm, I'm five years out of medical school at this point. And the last thing on the list was ENT. And I thought, huh, what's ENT? I'd never seen a tonsil taken out. I'd never seen a tube put in. So I phoned them up cold and said, will you interview me? And they said, who are you? We've got interviews next week. Come on in. Sure. And at the end of those interviews, they said, you are very impressive and your references are great. And we've got no idea who you are and whether you're actually serious. So here's the deal. You go do this for a year. And if you're still interested, we'll give you the job. And that's pretty much what happened. And so I sort of went into ENT late by default because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And again, you know, the journey wasn't fun. The destinations kind of worked out as being good fun. But, you know, the, so that's the sort of backstory of why on earth I'm doing ENT. It's interesting because when, when I'm interviewing medical students and residents, I, I see people who've done other stuff. And those interviews just go completely different because they've gone and done other lives. They've gone to other things. You know, I, I was a medic firefighter before I went to medical school. And I think that that was an invaluable experience for me because you start to think there's things outside of what you're focused on, you're hyper-focused on. Can you comment on how that sort of evolved into or affected your flexible thinking like we talked about earlier? Well, I, th I think just the more life experience you've got, the more able you are to think outside the box. And so if we take that in a medical sense, you know, I did a bit of neurosurgery. I did a bit of orthopedics. I did quite a lot of orthopedic surgery. So I did a few other things. And so, for example, when I was thinking, you know, I need an interposition graft when I'm doing a tracheoesophageal fistular repair. And, you know, what would be convenient? And so the two things I tend to go to is if I need a big graft, I go and get tibial periosteum. I've done two years of orthopedics. 
I've got no issue doing that. Or I think, you know, sternal periosteum, there's lots of it. It's often in the same field I'm operating in. And I've worked an awful lot with the cardiothoracic surgeons. So I'm, I'm very comfortable. Um, you know, there have been a few kids where I've done stenotomies without necessarily mentioning it to anyone at the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that sort of thing. So again, as I said, I've got a comfort zone in those areas. And the other thing that has been tremendously useful from my standpoint is my hospital's been willing to let me innovate. And that's basically, effectively, they trust me. And that's built on a quarter century of not having screwed up too often, as well as basically being someone who's not a complete asshole. And so that just gives you a little bit more forgiveness. And it's often funny little things that tip the balance. Let me just tell you why anesthesia trusts me in Cincinnati. You may not know the story, Eric. I probably don't. It's because of a tonsil bleed when I was a fellow. And the resident at the time, the chief resident was Debbie Wittiak, who's, you know, who's fabulous. And so I'm, I'm just walking through the OR and the blue light goes off in one of the rooms and I wander in and it's just chaos. Basically, they can't intubate an active tonsil bleed. They're about to do a slash trach. And I sort of wander up and say, oh, do you want me to just have a quick look? And I remember someone saying, why do you think you can do this when we can't? And I said, I probably can't, but I could have a look. And so I have a look. I can see the blood squirting from the left tonsil over to the right side arterial and just exploding on the right side. So everyone thinks the bleed is on the right when it's actually on the left. And I just stuck my thumb in the mouth over the tonsil sucked it out, popped a tube in and said, you might have a bit of blood in the lungs, suck that out. And then let's get on and tie off this, you know, bleeder, cauterize it. And that wasn't the thing that, if you like, made me trustworthy. It's what I did afterwards, because there was an element of, did anesthesia do something wrong? And it's so easy to score points on people by showing you're right and they're wrong. And what I did instead was basically say, oh, I can completely see how this happened. This is how this happened. And no, I don't think anything was done wrong. I think this is, you know, you can understand how you ended up in the position that you ended up in. And I don't think I was even aware of who the anesthetist was, but the fact that I had their back wasn't forgotten. And the interesting thing is that I ended up working with her for another 20 years. Her sister-in-law is one of our nurse practitioners. And again, that didn't happen till later on. And so again, you know, as a general rule of thumb, respecting people doesn't hurt you. And again, there's so many things in life. It's better to not try and score points at someone else's expense if you don't have to. It doesn't hurt to be nice to people. And most things are still, you know, even when things go wrong, it's good people trying to do the right thing. 
And it doesn't stop bad things happening, but that doesn't mean that they're at fault. Right. Absolutely. That speaks so much to your character, right? It's interesting as I'm transitioning from the Midwest to the East Coast, now I'm in New York. Personalities are very different here, how you get things done. But I've I very much ascribed to your methodology. You got to kill them with kindness. I mean, people don't want to help out people who are being who are being asses. And I think it gets you a long way to try and just be that team player, to be that jovial, nice person. Every once in a while, you have to push a little bit, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. We'll get back to hospitals and how that either inhibits or accelerates innovation. But one of the things you talked about earlier, and I, I found so important is because you trained in orthopedics and these other specialties, you were even aware of techniques that allowed you to think about it. And I think part of the thing when you also, when we went back to being straight line to some specialty or into some domain, you don't really get that experience to even think that things are outside your domain may be helpful. The example is microdebreeders and, you know, microdebreeders came from orthopedics, right? So if you never went and met with an orthopedic surgeon to understand, oh my God, this could really help. Laparoscopic needle drivers, which we use in cleft surgery all the time, but you wouldn't even know those existed. But even from a knowledge standpoint, you know, the whole case method that came from the law school to the business school to medicine, right? So you have to have this awareness of the things outside your domain in order for you to help think flexibly and think about how that is. And I think that's necessarily probably how some of the things you've been able to do, especially that tibial periosteum thing, you wouldn't even known it existed if you hadn't done orthos. And again, you know, there's an element of, yeah, I, I take a particular joy stealing other people's equipment from other specialities and using it for things it was never designed to do. And so, you know, in that sense, yes, just being aware of the things that are going on. And sometimes, you know, how shall I say, even the scrub techs can sometimes give you a suggestion and they're reluctant to do it because they think they're going to be criticized, but they may know stuff that you don't know because they work with the other specialties. And again, one of the lovely things from my standpoint is, you know, we, we've got a really collaborative environment. I work very closely with pulmonology, GI, pediatric surgery, cardiothoracic surgery. And so that's a great sort of breeding ground for innovation because you bounce ideas of each other. We recently did a kid who had a bit of a nasty sort of esophageal stricture TEF that had had a quite a few repairs that hadn't gone enormously well, and they just couldn't mobilize the esophagus the last time they tried. And they didn't quite kill the kid, but they had a good crack at it. And so the kid comes to us and they're in a little bit of trouble. And we sort of stabilize things. And this was a sort of a team effort. And we get to the point of, you know, we're going to have to repair this. And we know we can't mobilize the esophagus. And you've got a short segment that's trashed. And what we did was we went in through a virgin road. We went in through a stenotomy. We transected the trachea to get to the esophagus. And so we can do slide tracheoplasties for TEF. So we did that technique. And then I could mobilize the esophagus almost the diaphragm and up almost to cricoid and then basically hand it back to the ped surgeons and said, look, can you just sew this up? And then I repaired the trachea over the top of it. And that's an element of teamwork and trust and thinking outside the box. Very few pediatric surgeons would think, you know, why don't we go through the trachea to fix this esophagus? 
And that's again, where you need people you can work with, people you can trust. And our pediatric surgeons initially said, are you kidding me? And then they thought about it and they thought, you know, this makes sense and it worked beautifully. And so again, it's that ability to think outside the box using the tools that are available to you. And those include the people you work with. And that again, boils back to mutual respect and trust. And that's a great environment to work in. I mean, that's why it's been actually, I very much still enjoy what I'm doing. If I didn't enjoy what I was doing, I would be on my beach in New Zealand at this point in time. But it's interesting because you've, you've created a culture of creativity. And obviously, you know, obviously, you know, Dr. Cotton, his thinking, which was at, at the time, you know, heresy, essentially. But, you know, when, when people start having, you know, creating this creative culture where people are, are flexibly thinking and people trust you because they've had really good success and experience, we're going to move to uh, your innovations and some of the things that you've contributed to the field beyond your own surgical skill and ability to take care of kids. Tell us back to sort of the ideas that you started having. And you said there are specific patients that made you sort of think of these innovations. I mean, I, I, you know, as I look back, I can, I remember, I, I think I was, maybe I was a first or a second year fellow and we had a guy come in who's, he was an adult, he had a bad subglottic stenosis. His job was speaking on a phone and he was losing the ability to speak on a phone. And I thought, you know, He's trying to use a passive valve, but he's building up too much pressure and he's popping it off. What if it was a leaking valve, which is the exact non-selling point of a passive valve? The whole selling point is that it's a non-leaking valve. And so I took three passive valves home and in my living room, took a drill and started to experiment. And I found that if you put a 116th drill hole in it, it actually helped. You could do two of them. If you use the one eighth, again, flow is proportional to the inverse of the radius to the fourth power. So a one eighth drill bit's way too big. You can talk for two seconds and you've run out of gas. And if you drilled three holes, it was too much air with a one sixteenth. And so I started drilling passing muir valves and it worked incredibly well. And then we had another guy come to Cincinnati, a pulmonologist called Bob Wood, and he was dealing with this a different way. He was doing pressure checks on passing muir valves and saying, no, you can't use one of the pressures above this. So we combined those two ideas and we would do a pressure check. If it was above a certain number, 10 centimeters of subglottic pressure, we'd drill a hole in it. And if it was still above it, we'd drill another hole in it. And if it was still above it, we'd say, well, you shouldn't use a passing muir valve. And again, it's something that's gained a lot of popularity without ever necessarily having been advertised as such. And so again, it's just, it's a problem solving exercise. For those who aren't ENTs, so uh, when you have a tracheostomy, you have to be able to get air to pass around the tracheostomy through the nose and mouth for you to be able to talk. And we use one-way valves to help assist so that air doesn't go through the trach. It goes around the trach, but you don't always have room. So, but you have to generate that pressure, which is what Dr. Ward was talking about. So tell us more about, you know, obviously that was one of your first innovations, um, which was, you know, relatively, you know, small, local, obviously you've trained a lot of people. So that's gone a lot of places. How about some other more product development type stuff that you've, you've worked on? Why don't I tell you about some of the balloon dilation journey? And in fact, it's interesting. This is one particular patient, again, translating into a second patient. And so in 
April of 2001, I think, I did my first slide tracheoplasty with Peter Manning, one of our cardiothoracic surgeons. We'd read about it. We were looking for an ideal kid to do it on. That kid appeared. This was in the middle of the race riots in Cincinnati, so I remember it kind of well. And we did a slide, and you know that was the very first slide we did. Post-op, this girl developed what we now call a figure eight trachea. There was bunching of the edges, and I really didn't know what to do with this. I tried to put a bougie through her subglottis, but she had a mild subglottic stenosis, nothing that needed any intervention, but it meant that a bougie did nothing to her trachea at all. And so I thought, you know, well, maybe I could use one of these balloon dilators. And I borrowed an angioplasty balloon and I went down to the autopsy suite and I tried to explode the trachea of a couple of cadavers and I failed. And I thought, well, this has got to be pretty safe. And so I balloon dilated her and it worked kind of well. In hindsight, these get better on their own, but I didn't know that at the time. And you sort of, you get this new idea. And as you know, you given a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we started to use it for other things. And so fast forward another couple of years, and we had a guy who had done a slide on of the whole length of his trachea, and he started to reach the nose just above carina, above the bronchi. And so we were balloon dilating it. And Balloons are slippery. The industry term is watermelon seeding. If you have a wet watermelon seed and you squeeze it between your fingers, it may shoot off in one or other direction. And on the third dilation on this guy, it watermelon seeded down his right bronchus, which was a little stenotic and we had ignored it. And it ruptured his bronchus. And I mean, that is something that's not ideal. However, I knew we'd been in his chest before. And so I knew it was going to be contained. He was unlikely to end up with a pneumothorax, a pneumomediastinum, a pneumopericardium. So we just woke him up and extubated him because that way he's negative pressure ventilating, not positive pressure ventilating. And we told the nurses on the floor to keep him happy for a week because we didn't want him to cry. And, and they did a good job. And we scoped him again and he looked fine and it had fixed his right bronchial stenosis, interestingly. Not a way I would recommend, but it worked. However, I was quite influenced by the movement of the balloon and the consequences of it. And so I thought, you know, it would be really useful to have a non-slip balloon. And then I thought, so we could put a, a surface coating on it. And then I thought, anything you do, these things have so much power, it'll move. And then it'll just sandpaper whatever's in the way. So we can't do a surface coating. So then I thought, you know, if either end of the balloon went up and gripped a stenosis and then the center of the balloon went up to dilate the stenosis, so like a dog bone, this might do the job. And so I actually patented that. And it then took about 12 years before I could find someone actually interested in doing it. And again, having a good idea doesn't mean you can necessarily translate it to market easily. It's practicalities. There are other things that I've patented that are good ideas, but would absolutely fail in the marketplace. And therefore that's not a good idea or something like this, which actually I think was a pretty decent idea. As an aside, I wanted to call it balloon assisted dilation, airway safety strategy, or the badass balloon, but unfortunately no one would market it. I am still 
bitter about that. But that was sort of the evolution of how it happened. It was, again, one particular kid and a complication I had. And we got away with it, but it was a bad complication. And then there's a logical solution. So again, can you build safety into a product? And safety sells. People understand that. And of course, in a purely practical sense, if you're going to make a product, disposables are far more likely to fly. And so you see, for example, if you look, there are some wonderful laryngoscopes out there, but a laryngoscope is, you know, it's metal. It ain't going away and it may be fabulous, but the market is limited to the sort of esoteric laryngologists. And then that market will get saturated fast. And then you're, you know, they're going to last 30 years. So suddenly your business model falls over. And so, uh, again, it's not just having a good idea. It's, is it going to be able to survive in the marketplace? And how do you, you know, obviously coming from physicians were notoriously for being terrible at finances and business. How did you start to train yourself or who did you involve to train yourself on how to even do a market analysis, how to understand how to finance it, how to scale all those types of things? Oh, yes, it's kind of it. And in this particular example, so the, uh, the hospital started with this because I've got no option. You've got to go through your hospital, at least for most of us. And so. I did that. And then a couple of years later, they gave the intellectual property back to me because they didn't think there was anything that was going to develop from it. Interestingly, they didn't bother to tell me at the time I found out another year later. And then I started to pay the patent lawyers myself from there. And this is something that you, you start to get into these uncomfortable conversations with your spouse about just how much you're spending on this and is it actually worth it? And there's a certain, you know, degree of faith that you've actually got something that's worthwhile. And then it's about finding a partner who's willing to work with it. And I had a couple of bites of the cherry at that. So I worked with one company where, um, that was what really got balloon dilation into a product for the airway. And then I sort of said, you know, the reason I joined you was because of this. And interestingly, they wanted to buy my intellectual property to keep me on their scientific advisory board, but had no intention of actually making it. And so at that point I left the company and approached two or three people and sometime over a drink, I'll tell you the rest of this backstory, Eric, but it ended up, there was someone who was based in Cincinnati, Andrew George Alice from Bryan Medical, who had some space and time because he had another product that had had a hiatus and he was looking for something to do and he was willing to take a risk and I was willing to take a risk on him and it worked very, very well with the, you know, the two of us have kind of complemented each other extremely well. And again, a lot of basis of mutual respect and trust. And so, uh, again, you know, this is not meant to be an advertising hoarding. But Andrew's been a fabulous guy to work with, and he started working with some other people in our profession as well. And so you know, that's been a very positive relationship. I know Andrew well. He's, he's a really, really great guy. So take me back to that process. So you, you had the idea. You're like, okay, let's, let's patent this. What was that process like for you? 
it's innately frustrating at times because you've got to do a pattern search and we're not trained to do that. So, and we're really busy. So you've got to get someone to do it for you, which is almost inevitably a lawyer who's going to charge a hang of a lot per hour. And again, you, you know, I started off with the hospital lawyers because I had no option and then eventually went with someone in sort of private practice, so to speak, or a firm that specialized in patent law. And then you've got to work with the patent office and the patent office, don't get me wrong, but you're very much a slave to the particular person who's given your case file. And there are some people who you think might be really intelligent and who just aren't. And, you know, you're trying to explain things where it seems so self-evident, yet they think, well, this is, you know, this is the same as a, a balloon on an endotracheal tube in the airway. So what, you know, what's the patent protection of that? And you're going, no, 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 this is nothing like the balloon on an endotracheal tube. You, you just don't understand. And you're sort of trying to go through these things. And so it's a backwards and forwards with lawyers as intermediaries. So you get the language right, because this is not a language we innately know. Legalese is, uh, you know, with all of us in medicine, it's very easy to confuse our patients by the medical terms we inevitably drop without meaning to. It's the same in law. And so you basically need a translator to do this into a language that can be understood by the lawyers. And then once you get your patent approved, of course, you then get approached by everyone under the sun saying, you know, we will, uh, you know, we will get this product in here. So you get an awful lot of unsolicited mail outs from companies who say they're going to put this on the market for you. And almost inevitably, you don't want to do that. And then you start to get all of the other countries involved where, oh, you want to patent this in Europe and Europe is divided into a whole lot of countries. And, you know, and you will find that someone in Slovenia will offer to do this for 2000 bucks and you're going, no, this just doesn't seem wise. And so you've got to be strategic. So Europe, you choose two or three of the big countries, because if you've got them, it's not worth them going to try and market to all the other countries. So you patent protect in England, France, and Germany, maybe you think about Italy. You never try and seek patent protection in China because that tends to go badly and they'll take your intellectual property off you and just make it anyway. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's a very educational exercise. It's choosing key markets because otherwise it all starts to get really rather expensive. And again, luckily, at least in this forum, we're surgeons. So we've actually can afford to take a risk for something we believe in. So we're far better off than many people. And again, you know, I think I was just a little lucky. Did I do any market research? No, I just thought this seems like a good idea. I bet there's a market for it. And there sort of was. And sure enough. Yeah. So you got the patent, you've, you connected with a company. Did you have to deal with FDA? Yeah, well, again, it's, there's a, it's, it's a predicate because there are other similar devices on the market, not designed for the airway. And so it's a far cheaper road and this didn't involve a drug. And so if you had a drug eluting 
balloon dilator, suddenly you get in a whole different range of regulation that can get quite ugly. And, you know, and so for example, I'm going to just go completely lateral here. There's a suprastomal stent out there with my name on it. I didn't particularly want my name on it, but it was done for marketing reasons. And when we were doing this, I said to the hospital, this is not patentable. Are you okay if I just go solo? And so I went with this company and then you know, they made this stent. And I know that this is not a huge market, but it's very useful for the patients who need it. So I declined royalties because it's kind of pointless. This is not going to put my kids through college. Might buy a dinner once a year. And so meanwhile, interestingly, my main competitor in that marketplace the guy who invented that stent, it's more complicated, it's extremely expensive, and he thought it was going to be his retirement fund. And there's just no way. You're never going to make money out of something like a suprastomal stent. And it's got to the point, because of the increasing regulation, we'd like to make some other sizes. And it sort of starts at a six millimeter, and it'd be great to have a five millimeter. But to do the regulation it would now take to achieve that would probably cost $50,000. And you might sell a hundred of them a year, maybe, at the cost currently of about 110 bucks each. And so you will never recoup your losses. And so, yes, of course, it would be nice to make some changes to this, but it's impractical. You're just not going to do it because no company will do it. There's too much regulation involved. And so if we therefore went to, a lot of people have suggested, look, you should do a drug eluting stent. And I go, well, that's a great idea. I'd love to do it. And I will never do it because it will never succeed. Because the amount of, you know, you can't put a million bucks into getting FDA approval for something that the competition sells for $110 each, and you've only got a market of 100 a year. And so, you know, it's trying to realize the sort of the brutal realism of what a marketplace is. And so, as I said, there are some fabulous ideas out there that doesn't necessarily make for a successful product. It's so interesting as being in ENT and wanting to innovate because we're such a small specialty. So it's always really, really hard. All right. So you, you've got the patent, you found a company, you've, you know, basically gone through the established FDA pathway. What's next? What was the next step? So you've then got to basically make prototypes and make sure you're happy that they work and you've got to work out how much you're going to sell this for. And again, interestingly for us, that was extremely easy because our competitor company with a balloon that I'd actually helped design was selling their product for quite a lot of money. And the reason they were doing that was that they also had another balloon on the market for a different job, sinus balloons. And they couldn't risk undercutting their other product with a cheap balloon. And so you basically, our competitor is an overpriced balloon for what it is. And so as long as we are five bucks cheaper, we know where to start, you know, so you can have a product that's less expensive. You never use the word cheaper, by the way. This is a called a Pollyanna approach. You've got to sell your marketing points. And so a Pollyanna approach means basically an 
unduly optimistic view of the world. So I will give you another example. If you're interested in otitis media, you will know that with acute otitis media, any antibiotic you use, it takes treating nine kids to make a difference to one kid, which in turn means that if you want to do a trial where you're going to put two antibiotics head to head, you're going to need huge numbers to be able to show a real world difference. So you do a Pollyanna study. You deliberately underpower it. So you have 150 kids in each arm and you don't look for what's better. You're trying to prove that it's no worse. And that's really easy because you're underpowered in a disease where you've got to treat huge numbers to make a difference to a small number. And so you then easily prove that your drug is just as good as the other one on the market and say Augmentin. And then you choose your marketing strategy. So you always choose a drug that you will strategize well against. So Augmentin's great. So compared to Augmentin, my drug tastes better. It's cheaper. It's stable. You don't need to put it in the fridge. It lasts more than 10 days. It doesn't upset your stomach. So that is a Pollyanna marketing strategy. And so you take your product, you've got a competitor, and in this case, our balloon, and all of this, these are all true statements, but this is trying to help your marketing organization, your reps. Our balloon is less expensive. It's safer. It's less likely to slip. It's much easier to inflate and deflate rapidly. You can't accidentally connect the pump to the wrong port because there's only one port. And, and so you go through all of your positives compared to your competitor. Now, if you don't have a competitor, that puts you in a different place. But again, as I said, product and marketing are not the same thing. And so it's trying to, again, you look at the advantages of what you have. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so many examples throughout history about a product with not good marketing, but a very good product that just didn't take off. And the opposite, you know, you think about, you know, Tesla and Edison, you know, you think about all these people who, you know, the whole, a lot of it came down to the marketing. And I, I like the idea of doing a non-inferiority study with a lot of value propositions, which is sort of what you came to the market to. Exactly. That's the Pollyanna sort of theme. And, and again, you can see the opposite. I mean, Twinkies had a huge market. I mean, who on God's earth thinks Twinkies were a good product? I mean, you know, so yes, it's all about market. Well, it'll be the cockroaches and the Twinkies when everything else dies. So I want to talk a little bit more about navigating academics. You talked a little bit about the hospital. And I know a lot of people who are academic physicians not only have the hospital, but also have the university. I mean, the, the hospital you talked about sort of said, you know, you've, you and I have talked about this before. I don't know how much you want to share, but, you know, convincing the hospital that this wasn't going to make money can be very, very useful. Yes. So this is, that, that, that's a separate little discussion in terms of intellectual property. So the interesting thing is that years after I had patented my balloon, the hospital got interested again and wanted to buy the patent back off me. And they took me to a very nice dinner, which was kind of nice. And so we went to a great steakhouse, had a great dinner. 
And during the dinner, I basically said, why on earth would I do this? What would be in it for me to give you back the intellectual property? And this is ultimately one way or another going to be a licensing arrangement. And I'm going to represent myself better than you can represent me. And basically, as I said, I knew that before the dinner, but hey, a free steak dinner, you know. And so in a similar sense, there are times where there are things that you know just are not going to fly financially. So the suprastomal stent's a good example. That's never going to be a money maker. It's not worth the hospital's time and bother getting a patent search and patent protecting something like that. Even if it was patent protectable, it's just no money in it for them. And there are some things where you will know more about what you're doing than the hospital does. And often they're pretty open to actually having your opinion as to how much to put into this. And the key is to try and be careful being strategic because you don't want to get into the point of being involved in fraud. That's never a good position to be in. But there are times that you can give them very valid advice about what you're doing. Obviously, if you're in training or something like that, whoever employs you owns you and owns everything you produce. But there are often transitions in life. And if you are changing jobs or going from a fellowship to an attending post, it doesn't hurt if there is a week in between those two positions. And that would be a really good week to have a fabulous idea and write it down somewhere as just a passing comment and then you're in charge of your own destiny means you won't have any support from the institute doing it so there are pros and cons to that because some hospitals can be extremely valuable in helping you on these roads there's definitely uh, times that i took that advice along my path and I'll, I'll leave it at that you know we talk a lot about a lot of successes you know people see you know you come up with an idea it magically gets made you know you, you magically you know make a little bit of money can buy a steak dinner tell me about the times that it just didn't go right tell me about the failures whether it be with this product other products what were some of the stumbling blocks that you you went through so there are you know i i, I think at the moment i've actually only got four patents i've had a lot of other good ideas and, and some of them I'm totally willing to share. So for example, laparoscopic instruments, it would be fabulous to have hydraulic laparoscopic instruments where you've got a little reservoir and when you actuate the hydraulics turn something. So you could put immense force through it and you could actually have a system where the end of it turns around a corner and then something else actuates. So you could do a lot of very cool things using hydraulic surgical instruments. And so hydraulic surgical instruments, great idea. There is a blocking patent out there by a big, big company. You can't go in against something like Ethicon. And they've just protected the space, but I'm not sure they have any interest in working in the space. And of course, this is translatable. You know, we're thinking ENT, we're thinking, you know, sort of endoscopic. They're thinking laparoscopic because it's a huge market. And so this could be something that is a really cool idea if someone took it and ran with it. And I'm just not willing to do it because it would be a massive pattern fight. And 
just the sheer ability of me as an ENT surgeon to work with hydraulics and find someone who is willing to try and actually make working designs, it's a good idea. It's going to be very hard to make it. Similarly, you know, I, I had a, another patent on an endotracheal tube, which was designed for trachostomas. And so a ray tube is a short piece followed by a bend, followed by a long bit. And so this would have been the opposite. This would have been a long piece followed by a bend, followed by a short bit to go in a trachostoma. I mean, perfectly decent, reasonable idea. And there's just not a market for it. And so it's not a good idea. And so I think that was the first patent that I abandoned as I started to realize you need so much more than a good idea. You need a market. And so, you know, there's been a lot of things where we all have good ideas now and again, converting those to products is more challenging and that's design and marketing. Absolutely. You have to think about who's going to be paying for this. How are you going to make this? All those types of things. A couple rapid fire questions. When it comes to doing product development innovation, what was the best advice you ever got? Oh my goodness. Um, I'll have to think about that. I, I, you can answer the second question first if you want. The second question is, what was the worst advice you ever got? <laughs> oh, they're really the same question, my friend. So I, I think the first question in a way was that that's a good idea. You should patent it by someone who's had no experience in the space. Because as I said, we all have good ideas and you can spin your wheels for a long time and put a lot of effort into something that's going to go absolutely nowhere. And so yeah, a good example is the drug eluting stent, which sounds fabulous and it's a good idea, but do you want to go down that rabbit hole? How are you ever going to make money from it? You're not. And this would take a lot of investment to get it through the FDA if a drug's involved. So, you know, it's just, as I said, it's alluring. You think this is a great idea. I've got to do this, but then you've got to, as I said, people are always willing to give you advice. You've got to have the filter to know what advice to accept and what advice to cast aside. And often the people giving you advice have no experience in the field. They just have enthusiasm. And while there is a place in the world for that, I mean, I've done most of what I've done just because of enthusiasm and blind ignorance, but you know, it's, as I said, you've got to choose your advice wisely. So I'm sure, you know, being in this space and knowing what people know about you as a, as a surgeon pioneer, I would say, I'm sure a lot of people come to you with ideas that they have for products. Are there any that you can share or at least stories from, you know, what advice you gave those people? So your first job as someone comes to you with an idea is, can you shoot it down? Can you do the harsh reality check? Drug eluting stent is the perfect example of that. I've had three people come to me with that idea and I've just basically explained to them that, yeah, great idea. No, you don't want to do it for these reasons. And often they've just not thought it's the same in surgery. As I said before, it's risk evaluation and mitigation. 
just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it's going to fly. And you don't want to spend a large amount of time and money for something that is inevitably going to fail or is a high risk of that happening. And so um, that's the first thing. The next thing is you think, you know, that is a good idea. There is a potential marketplace for it. And your problem is you don't know who to work with. And so that's where at times I've been able to connect people to intellectual property lawyers. I've been able to connect people to people they can work with and trust. And and, and so I'll give you an example. A good friend of mine, Shaholm Roy, had an idea to make a laser-safe endotracheal tube. And he's got a lot of experience with operation room safety and lasers and laser fires and so on and so forth. And basically I said, this is the sort of product where you've got a bit of a niche market. There's a sort of a sweet spot for a smaller firm. This is not something that's going to be a huge market, but it's a real market. You want someone who's in that sort of rough zone of what would be financially viable and worth someone's while. You're not going to get a huge company interested. You know, Mallinckrodt's not going to be interested in this. They have already cast it aside because there was too much downside risk for the upside gain. For them, they're huge. And this was a niche and it caused them problems. So they walked away. So for this, why don't you go and see Andrew George Alice? He knows ENT. He's someone who is innately a gentleman someone who a handshake matters to, someone you can trust not to screw you over. And again, that is in fact what he did. And they are now have developed a laser safe endotracheal tube. Just as an aside, we had a most wonderful session in the operating room trying to set this thing on fire. You have no idea how much fun we had with that. Oh my God. Shaham told me when he, he uh, also the co-leader one that he tried to set the co-leader one on fire and he couldn't do it. That's the, the most fun job that he has is, you know, working with the FDA to try to set things on fire. Um, so I'm very jealous. I'm very, I'm very jealous of that. Good work if you can get it. We're going to move to sort of the future and what's next. Is there anything else on the horizon for you? And then also with that, is there anything outside of ENT that, that has sparked your interest or areas that you've thought about? So The interesting thing for me is that, you know, um, while I do product innovation, I'd still do, if you like, surgical innovation, which to me is all part of the same spectrum. It's problem solving. And again, you know, don't get me wrong, but if you read most literature, it basically says, you know, your innovation brain is burnt out by the time you're 25 or 30. And of course, all surgeons, we're way past that. And at least at the moment, it seems to me that I'm still innovating. As I said, literally last week, I thought of doing something a bit different. And, you know, I, I would say two or three good ideas each year, and some of them will only help that particular patient other than others will have some, you know, greater application. And so at the moment I'm still innovating and still thinking of solutions to difficult problems. I'll give you an example from last year. We, we had a boy who had a, a mega trachea and right bronchus, massive. And so he's intubated and he can't be trached because there isn't a trach you can put in that that's going to have a cuff big enough to be able to ventilate him. 
And so he's got a huge trachea. And so what I did was that I did a laryngotracheal separation where I transected through the intact cricoid. So I pulled a ring of intact cricoid up to the skin and sewed it to the skin. And the cricoid is the cuff. So I can put a trach tube through that because that ring of cartilage is now the cuff and we can ventilate him. And so again, it's an unusual solution to a difficult problem, but seemed to be very effective. And so again, it's just, as I said, it's thinking outside the box and, and you're always going to see one or two kids who've got a trachea that has got a cuff related problem where this might be a potential solution. So not wide applicability, but it's got a place in the world. And so that's at the moment what floats my boat. It's continuing to push the envelope to innovate as much as I can, trying to be a benefit to my patients and keep them safe. In terms of what I'm doing, I mean, a lot of what I'm doing is actually collaborative at the moment. So a lot of this stuff is being done across specialities. As I said, I mentioned that girl where we fixed her esophagus by going through a trachea recently. And that's a very collaborative solution to a difficult problem. At the moment, I don't have any particular intellectual property things at play. Well, I've got one. I've sort of been messing around with a modified passing U of L for absolutely years, but it's just, you know, and eventually we'll get around to actually making it where you don't have to do pressure checks. It'll be a valve and a valve. And that way you don't need to check the pressure. It does it for you effectively. So again, I'll eventually get that sorted out. So there's just little ideas like that. Anything outside of ENT that excites you technology-wise, innovation-wise? Are you reading anything outside that has sparked your interest? Yeah, no, I, I've got fairly diverse reading tastes at the moment. So um, interestingly, the book I just very recently read was Jacinda Ardern's biography. She's the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's just a cool person. So that was a fabulous book. And so, you know, looking forward, I mean, to me at the moment, I'm, I'm actually doing things, planning my retirement. So I'm 59. I'm planning to retire when I'm 65. And I'll be honest, probably about 15 years ago, I actually took a step back and thought, you know, there are some people who are working way longer than I want to work. What do I need to do to not be in that position? And I really identified three things. So one, you need good junior colleagues so you can walk away without feeling guilty. And, and we've just got a fabulous team. I'm so lucky to have the colleagues I've got. Two, you need a carrot. And so I bought the family house on a beach in New Zealand. That's the carrot. And three, ideally you need an independent income source so you're not beholden to the hospital or needing to work for an income. And that's why I patented a few things and that's, you know, sort of worked reasonably. And so at the moment, that's also given me the ability to get closer to achieving what I would term FU status. And again, in a hospital setting, you need three things. You ideally need an independent income source. So you're not, you don't have to work. Ideally, you need to have the belief that the hospital needs you more than you need the hospital. 
And the third thing, and this is always the tricky bit, is the hospital needs to realize that they need you more than you need the hospitals. And that's the one that always falls over, unfortunately. But I'm in a good place. I enjoy what I do. And as long as I keep enjoying what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing it for a few more years because it's fun. I love working with my colleagues and our trainees, and I try to keep the environment light and enjoyable. And I think it's a good working environment. I like the people I work with. I respect them. And that helps enormously. I mean, you've worked with me for a long time. How often do I lose my temper? Maybe once every five years. And it is usually a damn good reason why. And it involves someone screwing with one of my patients. But the positive aspect of that is if I do get upset about something, everyone actually pays attention to it. Correct. Yes. Trust me. Like literally, I, I have, I've taken a page from that book myself. Well, you know, you, you save it. I have to say, I've never seen you upset. Um, I've never seen you mad. That's a good thing. You know, I, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for patients, everything you've done for everybody you've trained. You are a huge pillar in our community and not just your surgical innovation, your flexible thinking, but just your character. And I think that that really is another thing that I've taken away from working with you. There's a lot of people that are interested in innovation and interested in product development. What is your top level parting advice for those who are interested in this space? Believe in yourself. That would be the single piece of advice. If you have a good idea and you really think that it might be a benefit to your patients as opposed to just your pocketbook, and you think that you've got a viable road where this could succeed on a marketplace, back yourself and it can be done. And it's not always straightforward, but it can be done. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Mike Rutter. We really appreciate you taking the time and thank you so much for everything you do for our patients and for the next generation of ENT surgeons. Thank you very much for the invitation, Eric. Been a delightful conversation. 